0: Alright boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin. You have your own translation in there and a place you can ask questions. And for everyone else, we're going to be in the uh, Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Bible. So just go to the very beginning and turn forward five books. You should be able to find it or you can also just open up your app, which most of you probably have. The ESV app is free in the app store. If you don't have that one, it's a good one. Or you can turn there in your bulletin. So we got all sorts of scriptures, any way you choose this morning. And while you're turning there, kind of Get us into this word, but before we do that, let's let's go to God in prayer and ask him to open this text up to us before we presume to jump in. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you, Lord, that you have given us truth for our growth and for our transformation because you care. You want us to be more holy and you've given us the grace through Christ to be like that. And So, Father, we pray that we would indeed hear Mark. And be changed by this word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember I was sitting in one of my very first classes ever in seminary. I was ready for real graduate level work about to start. No more of that college stuff. This was grad school. ready to do this thing. And this godly old Pauline scholar stood up there and cleared his throat. And he says, You will never understand... The New Testament, unless you understand this principle. And I was like, oh, let's do this thing. I'm ready. To this is the secret, right? Here we go. And he says, the hortatory is based on the declarative. And I went, what? And I heard lots of familiar Presbyterian grunts. all-m-mm And people started writing down. And I was like, um. clearly I wasn't the only one with a confused look on my face. Because he kind of cleared his throat again. And he goes, mm-hmm. The imperative always rests on the indicative. I still, I was just about to raise my hand, ask if maybe he could do it in sock puppets, when the guy next to me bumps me and goes, "I don't know either. Just write it down. We'll figure it out." He went on to be an RUF minister. he's now an Air Force chaplain. So I'm like, okay, we'll do what he says. And so we did. We wrote it down. Moved on. Figured it out. It was much later that it clicked, and it's this: whenever we come across. A command in scripture. A to do. Most of you who are not familiar with Christianity or the Bible, what you think the Bible is, a bunch of rules, there aren't any bald rules in scripture. Whenever there's an imperative, a command, a to do, it is always based on a corresponding truth of grace and indicative. Thus, Fancy professor talk, the imperative rests on the indicative. Why can't they just say it better? I don't know. Anyway, so there's no bald commands in Scripture. Whenever you see a to-do, there's always a truth of grace with it. Great example. Ten commandments, right? They start out with what? I am the Lord your God who has already brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Notice the, the command is based on the truth of grace. I've already done the work. Now here's the command. And why I'm telling you that is that is the key to our text today, that there are no bald commands. Instead, they're always resting on a truth of grace, because what we're in at this part of the book of Deuteronomy is we are in a sermon given by Moses. That' great. So we've got like an inception thing happening, right? We've got a sermon inside of a sermon, so maybe you'll wake up. So anyway, Moses in this section is giving God's people a lot of commands, Lots of to-dos, lots of do this. Verses 1 through 5 are all those commands. Go in there, kick out the inhabitants, take over their space, take over their stuff, make sure all their idol worship is gone. Lots of commands, lots of to-dos. And our passage then, verses 6 through 11, is the truth of grace. All those commands are based on so let's jump in together Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses uh, chapter 7, excuse me, verses 6 through 11 and see all these this grace that we have in here. This is God's word. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. This is God's word. So God declares who they are out of his love for them. And then they live that identity out of their love for him. That's what's going on here. That kind of gives us our theme for today. If you want to write this down, maybe talk about it over lunch or use it in your personal worship throughout the week. Here's where we're going to go today. We stand firm in the joy of who God says we are. We stand firm in the joy of who God says we are. In other words, rooted in God's love, we can love and serve Him in joy. And so let's jump into that here. First question I want to ask is, where do we stand with God I love how Moses here does not urge the people to be holy. He doesn't exhort them to be holy. Did you notice that? He emphatically states right here in verse 6, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. That is, that's the truly radical identity of God's people. It's an established fact. It's who they are. They did not earn this distinction. They received it as a gift. So where do we stand with God? We stand right where God says we do. Oh, my longtime Christians, hear that. You stand with God where He says you do, not where your fearful, doubting heart says you do. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are holy before God. And as a beloved child, then rest in God's declaration of who you are. Not in the angst of your feelings about where you think you are. If you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, you are holy. And God says, you're mine. Believe that. Even though your doubting heart right in this moment is telling you that's not true. Your heart's wrong. See, what I'm talking about here is the idea of identity. It's a very powerful idea in our culture. Who we are what makes us valuable, that is our identity. You know, our culture more and more rejects what's called a a received identity. Kind of like verse 6, something from outside of us comes and says, this is who you are. Our culture rejects that. And you know this, you live this, right? We shouldn't let anybody tell us who we are. We shouldn't let anything define us. We should discover within ourselves our own desires. We should fulfill those desires, regardless of who or what is in our way. That's called being authentic, right? That's what our culture says. In fact, if you're here and you're still kind of investigating Christianity, you're not sure if you'd call yourself a, a Christian, all this we are who God says we are kind of bothers you, doesn't it? See, but Christianity is emphatic. Identity is based on who God says we are. An external source comes in and tells us. And that goes against what many of you assume. Namely, that what? Identity comes from within, from being true to yourself, right? See, what we have here as we come to this section of Scripture is we have what's called an irreconcilable difference. We can't just say, well, I respect the Bible as a, as a book, but as, no, we have to say this book is wrong. Or well, we have to say this book is right. There's no middle ground. God declares in his word that our identity is found in him. We are who he says we are. Our culture declares that our identity comes from inside of us. We must be true to ourselves. Not let anyone else define us. And every one of you in the room lives out of one of those identities. But here's the problem. Our culture is wrong. We can't validate ourselves. We can't create our own identity. We may say, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. But that is not true. We do, don't we? The only people who really live that way are called sociopaths. And we don't like them very much. Right, We all have to look outside of ourselves and decide what's a good identity versus what's a bad identity. We align ourselves with what our chosen culture or our chosen friend group says this is acceptable. It's like, yeah, okay, I'll do that because I want to fit in. We don't create it ourselves. We choose this outside identity over that outside identity. So it's not really an internal versus external. It's which external is better for us. Which which fulfills us the most? Which identity sets us free? Okay, now at this point, I was going to stop because some of you have been like, I have no idea what he's talking about. This is like way too philosophical for me. Especially our boys and girls here. I know you're totally lost, right? So I want to do it. Let's try this at a different angle. So adults, turn with me to the front of your bulletin, if you will, the very front cover. And kids, I got a couple pictures for you to look at. So let's throw up the first picture and let's look at the front of the bulletin together. Here we go. So, Frozen, the character here of Elsa, especially her song, Let It Go, Don't Start. Okay, right? It, it is all about defining yourself. The sovereign self makes its own identity. She boldly claims, right? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Here I stand, and here I'll stay. Let the storm rage on. That is really singable. I'd like to resist not singing that, okay? All right, she is determined to be who she is going to be regardless of others. The rest of the world is not her problem anymore. She's just letting it go. And that song has resonated with so many people because it's exactly what our culture says it means to be authentic. But as the movie surprisingly goes on to show, it doesn't work, does it? It doesn't fulfill her. She proclaims, here I stand, and she stands alone. Isolated in fear. It makes me think actually of another famous usage of this phrase. Another picture here for you. 500 years ago, Martin Luther, a simple German monk teaching the gospel of grace versus a performance-based religion of works, stood before the most powerful men of his day. All of whom wanted him to recant, to change his mind to confess that he was wrong and conform to their rules. And for strength and for courage, Martin Luther did not reach inside of himself for identity as Elsa did, as our culture says to do. Instead, he rested on the truth of Deuteronomy 7 6, and he let God name him. He let God identify him. He said, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. And he went on to lead what's been called the Protestant Reformation, and the nearly one billion Protestants in the world today show that when he proclaimed, Here I stand, he did not stand alone. You see, we put those two contrasting quotes on the front of the bulletin, Because every one of you in this room lives out of one of those identities. In fact, you go back and forth at different times of the day between them. Here's what that looks like practically. Culture says, fulfill your desires. Be yourself or you are a failure. It creates such pressure, does You have to find your dreams, you have to work really hard and get your dreams, and you have to show that you did it yourself and you did it your way. And, and what it does is it turns things like money and success and fame and accomplishment, it turns those into idols. We give our lives to those things saying, if I get this, then I'll be a real person, I'll, I'll have identity, I'll have one, I'll be successful, I'll be worthy. And they never fulfill us. They keep demanding more and more of us. We feel valuable only if we have performed well according to our dreams. And so it makes our self-worth very erratic and very unstable. Until, like Elsa, we say, you know what? Forget it. I can't take this anymore. I'm going to do what makes me happy, what makes me fulfilled. And we find ourselves completely alone. Like Elsa, again. See, you can't be completely self-fulfilled and live with other people around you. That just doesn't work. It becomes a prison of isolation and fear. See, but the promise of the gospel is freedom from all that junk. It sounds so simple to say it, but it's, it really is that simple. First, John four eighteen tells us what, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. You see, in God's love, identity is received. It's not achieved through working really hard, God comes and says, you are my people. You are holy. And did you catch what he said back, going back to Deuteronomy, did you catch what he said there in verse six? He called them a treasured possession. We could call that really valuable property or a particular treasure. What it made me think of was Gollum calling his little ring, what? The precious, but not creepy, right? So More like on the lines of, you know, I have three daughters and each one of them has had a time in their life when I kiss them on the forehead and call them my precious. That's the Hebrew word here. God says, you're my holy people and you're precious to me. Don't you want that identity that's given to you? Not an identity that says, find your dreams, work real hard, achieve those dreams, and then you have value as a person. Don't you want the creator of all things to come and say, you're mine and you're precious? So where do we stand with God? We stand firm in the joy of who God says we are. So the next question we have to ask then is how can we stand with God? See, the message of grace is consistent. Just as our identity, our value, our worth is based on God's grace, so too we stand with God because of His grace, because of His love. I want to go back and read again slowly these, the, these first couple verses, verses 7 8 from the mean Old Testament, so we really get this. Look with me. He says what? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. See, the essential difference between grace and religion is right there in that passage. Here in the mean Old Testament. Religion says what? Do all this stuff, be this person, and I will love you. So get to it. And we reflect that attitude when we think or we say things like, oh, i got to clean my life up before I go to church. Or i got to clean my life up before I come to Christ. See, but grace based in love says, you you can't do this stuff without help, so I'll help you. You can't be this person without help, so I'll help you because I already love you. That's grace. That's what God offers to his people here. That's what's going on in these verses. These people weren't attractive to God. They weren't going to make God look good. But our Lord loves his people anyway. And out of that love, he chose to redeem them. See, here's what's going on here. I want you to get this. God doesn't want a trophy wife. That's what he's saying. This idea of Christ as as the groom and the church as the bride is actually rooted in the Old Testament where God was husband to his people. And God comes here and says, I don't want a trophy wife. You know, someone who has to look good to make me look good. You have to perform so I always look good. Everything you do is about making me look good. And if you don't perform, boop, next. It's not what God wants. Instead, I don't want to get in trouble here. God's kind of like that person that if you're a Facebook person, you have one of these people in your friend list. They, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. They have ugly children. And they keep putting pictures of their ugly kids on your timeline. Because they don't know they're ugly kids. They're precious and beautiful and gorgeous to them. And you're like, man, I haven't had coffee yet. Turn that off. And guess what? God's people are like those ugly kids. That's what we are. The world looks at the church and goes, you love that? Have you seen those losers? And God's like, I know, they're my losers. They're precious. We even have a saying for that in case you think I've crossed the line, right? A face only a mother could love. Well, guess what? God's people are a people only a God could love. That's what his love is like. That's what he's saying here. We're that ugly kid. So don't ever fall into this error, especially you long-time church attenders, of thinking that God is mean and anal retentive and uptight and he's just ready to hit you at any moment. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ came and pried affection from God's hands. And so God's like, well, I guess I'll love you because of Jesus Right? No, God is love and he adores his people and he's like, that's why he sent Jesus. He's like, are you ready to save them yet? That's right here in the mean Old Testament. Let's make sure you get this. Boys and girls, let's look at your verse 7 and 8. Here's what it says. He selected y'all because he loves y'all. Not because y'all are so adorable or lovable. Y'all aren't. Instead, the Lord is being loving and faithful. He rescues because He promised He would. See, boys and girls, it's important that mom and dad keep their promises, isn't it? It really hurts your heart and your feelings when they don't keep your promises, huh? Well, God keeps His promises. That's why He sent Jesus. He loved and rescued His people because He said He would. That's what we just celebrated on Friday, right? God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to rescue us from sin and sorrow and death because He said He would and He loves us. How do we stand with God? We stand firm in the joy of who God says we are. But there's another final question we, we must ask as we look at this passage, and that's this. How can God stand with us? Verse 10, as we read it through, is very clear. God takes very seriously those who hate Him. Those who disregard Him. Those who despise Him. People may be neutral towards God, but God is not neutral towards people. So what does it mean to hate God if He feels that strongly about it? Well, verse 11 actually provides us with the definition. What? It's not being carefully obedient to God's instructions. See, just like you... God hates hypocrisy. He hates superficial relationships. If we give him lip service but our lives completely oppose everything he stands for, he hates that, just like you do, when your friends do that. Friends. See, and if you're paying attention, there's a big problem here, isn't there? Because you and I are mired in sin and hypocrisy. We are all about being uncareful. To follow God's instructions. We excel at ignoring His law. Verse 11, if you're candid, really makes verse 10 extremely scary. Because we have to confess that by God's own definition in verse 11, we do hate Him. We want to do what we want, not what He wants. Remember the whole culture thing? Do what you're supposed to do. Be who you're supposed to be. Don't let someone outside. We, we, we swim in that water. We think that way. So what do we do? It takes us right back to the identity question. Elsa versus Martin Luther. Are we going to chafe against and reject God's instructions as some sort of performance based identity from the outside that we have to conform to that makes us sick? Are we going to be Elsa and basically proclaim to the Creator, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free from you? But if we do that, how do we not end up in a prison of isolation and fear? Just like she did, just like many of you live in. Or are we going to be Martin Luther and have God identify us? See, really it's the question of grace versus performance. God comes and identifies us by grace. He identifies His people because of the work of Jesus Christ, not because of what we have done. And so it doesn't matter if you're here for the first time or if you've been sitting in that same chair for 25 years. We all tend to read passages like this and think religious performance is what's going on here rather than grace. And so what I want to do is I want to end by walking back through this text very quickly. Showing how Jesus Christ is the answer to our thirst for identity. And He's the answer to the problems and questions of this text. How we can stand in this world. Verse 6, God declares Israel holy. The rest of Scripture tells us that Jesus is actually the new Israel. The one chosen of God. Who was tested and declared holy. And united to Him by faith, we receive that holiness. Verse 7 says, Israel wasn't impressive or great to earn God's favor. The rest of the Bible tells us Jesus was not an impressive man. In fact, Isaiah tells us specifically that people would have just ignored him. He had nothing that made him stand out. But he was the beloved son of God. And united to him, we receive that sonship and that love. Verse 8, Israel was rescued because of God's love for them. Jesus is the ultimate object of God's love. And so according to promise, when he voluntarily submitted himself to death, the Psalms tell us that God opened up the pathways of life and led him out of death to life, rescuing his son. And united to him by grace, that rescue from death is ours. Verse 9, God declares that He is faithful to those who love Him and obey Him. And Jesus is the ultimate lover and obeyer and keeper of God's commandments. And so Jesus guarantees for us the faithfulness of God to us when we are faithless. Verse 10, God declares that He will destroy those who hate Him. And Jesus Christ on the cross became our hatred of God. He became our disregard for God's instructions. And so God was pleased to destroy him, we are told. And all those who've been united to Christ by faith have died with him in their hatred to God and have been raised to new life. And finally, verse 11, Israel should be careful to obey God's will. Jesus Christ was careful to do God's will his entire life. And so now united to him by faith, we are counted as fully obedient to God's law as well. What would it do if you actually believed all that instead of just not? See, we should rejoice that God saw the inability of his people to obey. And so He sent a Redeemer to obey for us. It sounds too good to be true, but it isn't. Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's instructions. And that obedience is credited to us. God then names us His holy people, says you are holy because of what Christ has done. And when God looks upon us, He's perfectly pleased, even calls you His precious. Oh, if only we believe that. If you've confessed Christ as Lord, that is your identity. Rest in God's declaration of your value and your worth. All available to you because of the grace of Jesus Christ. That is what we get in the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you haven't really done that, or you're not really sure about this whole Christianity thing, don't you want that identity? Don't you want to walk around like, you know what? God loves me. God calls me His own. He calls me His precious. And so as I go through the junk of my day, that grounds me. Don't you want that instead of striving for your own identity? You can have that. Just simply confess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that we're here in church on a Sunday morning. We're all at least moderately kind of religious, and we know the language, and we know the terminology and the practices, and Lord, we don't believe most of this stuff. Father, would you, by the power of your Spirit, overwhelm us once again with your grace? Would you show us how much we need you to name us, to set us free from striving to make our own name in the world? being exhausted and fearful. Lord, would you give us Christ? Would you do your work of salvation and build those of us who know you, build us up more in the faith. Help us to believe you more. Those here who don't know you, Father, would you call them from death to life just as you called your son out of the grave? We know you can do these things. We ask that you would, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.